to the USA Hockey Podcast, a youth sports conversation focused on providing players, coaches, and parents with engaging and informative content that they can use at home and at the rink. Tune in as we chat with some of the greatest people around ice hockey and youth sports. Join the discussion on Twitter at USA Hockey Coach. Now, let's drop that puck. All right, welcome back to the USA Hockey Podcast. Today, we are welcomed on by Dr. Larry Lauer, who is a mental skills specialist for USTA Player Development. Uh, Larry has a PhD in exercise and sports science, specializing in sports psychology from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, uh, and has been a sports psychologist consultant for over a decade with elite tennis players from junior college and pros. So Larry, super excited to have you on. Thanks, Doc. Happy to be here. Uh, it's always fun to, to talk hockey. And, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, with USA Hockey's National Team Development Program many years ago. So uh, always love any chance I can to get back in and, and discuss hockey. So, yeah. Well, perfect. So today we are going to be talking about coaching resiliency in hockey. But before we do that, uh, I would love to hear the Larry Lauer youth sporting experience uh, from when we, you were a young one up until now. Oh, wow. So I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in the 80s, you know, so different different worlds, uh, very rural. You know, you played every season, so you'd switch sports, right? So in the fall, you'd play football, and in the winter, you'd play basketball, and Spring was baseball time, and then into summer baseball. I didn't have a lot of hockey around me, unfortunately. The closest rink was an hour away, and for my parents, with me already playing uh, four sports, also playing tennis in the summer, uh, it was kind of probably too much. So, you know, we played street hockey, and then and got inline skates and started skating and playing hockey, and loved it. And then. Then my, some of my friends were able to drive and started going to the rink and started to play ice hockey. So I got a little later start, uh, but played baseball, football, basketball all the way through high school uh, and then, you know, walked on for baseball, Mary University, ran into a slump at the wrong time, and that was the end of my baseball career, uh, which probably ended up really propelling my sports psychology career to be honest at. you know I might not be doing this today if I performed well I don't know because uh, we all, always all of us we talk about it in the field a lot of us get started because um, something we're trying to, to learn and understand ourselves so uh, but yeah you know great experience in western Pennsylvania football was king you know Friday nights uh, football varsity was was the deal lived for it and enjoyed it paid the price for probably still sore from some of those hits I took but uh, but definitely a great experience and and then once I went to college and, and baseball was over I played as much hockey and tennis as I could those were kind of the two sports I continued to play um, and played them a lot through my 20s 30s 40s and, and then today I still play you know we got a big group of guys who play roller hockey here in Orlando so I play roller hockey with a bunch of guys here who are very good uh, which is enjoyable and uh, my son's playing ice hockey now uh, at the ice den in Maitland Florida and 
I'm coaching his 15U team, so, um, you know, bells and whistles are going off. Well, Ray, oh, he's coaching his own son. Okay. So, but it's turned into be a great experience. And, um, yeah, so it's a little bit flavor of where I came from. That's awesome. And, and so how did you get involved with uh, USTA? So the USTA uh, really, for me, started when I went to, to grad school in UNC Greensboro. My mentor, Dan Gould, was doing a project for the USTA studying why tennis coaches were not teaching the mental skills that were in books of the day. So we're talking about early 90s, late 80s, those books. Why are they not using Jim Lair's information or other folks? And so we did focus groups with coaches and learned that they, the information was hard to find. It was a bit impractical. Uh, they needed resources they could really kind of grab and understand how to put into practice. So we embarked on, and this became, I became the head of this project uh, to develop a mental skills and drills book for the U.S. team to help their coaches learn how to teach mental skills as a part of what they're already doing in sport. Um, so I spent the next 14 years working on this book um, through many editions, and, you know, new books that were coming out, creating new ideas, and that led to the USTA Mental Skills Drills Handbook. So that was my first involvement with USTA. But then after that, you know, speaking in coaching programs, once you start doing some research, out, outreach for them, you start doing some coaching programs, performance coaching program. And then I I started doing a, another project that Dan uh, was the lead on, and that was studying parents. Uh, the parents and the juniors, or well, the players, when they were juniors, but these pro players, what their experience was like going through the development years. Uh, we, we would, I would interview the parent, the player, and one of their development coaches and try to figure out that sort of relationship as it went through those development years. It was a really fascinating study, Zach, and we found many things. One of the most important things we found was that um, you can do things kind of in a very positive way as a parent, not be over-involved, not be overly critical, be supportive. And your child can still become a pro tennis player. Like, you don't have to be crazy. I think Yannick Sinner, who just won the Australian Open, talked about this with his parents. Uh, and when I say crazy, crazy involved. Uh, you can do it the other way, too, though, clearly, because we see it all the time. We're just talking to the director of women's tennis about it today, uh, where you're over-involved, super critical, uh, judgmental, you can go different routes with your parenting, but it's what happens to the child that ends up being the story, right? What what issues are they dealing with because of that experience? So we did a lot of this work, and from that, I was doing parent uh, education workshops around the country, uh, started doing player development camps. And through all of that, USDA got to know me, and in 2012, they opened up a position uh, for a, a mental skills coach, the first time full-time at the USDA Player Development. In 2013, I was fortunate enough to be hired, and I've been doing that ever since, so it's been 10-plus years now. 
Awesome. Well, it sounds like you've walked uh, through lots of different projects regarding the mental skills. And as I said at the beginning today, while we could go down all the all the rabbit holes, we might be here all day. Um, we are specifically going to be talking about resiliency. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of coaches, they want their players to be resilient. They talk about resiliency, um, but really kind of starting it off. What is resiliency? Like, what does it actually mean to be resilient? Yeah, in, in layman's terms, uh, really the ability to bounce back, to adapt to changing conditions, to return to form uh, after there is adversity. You know, there's really the hallmark of, of being resilient is you have to be under adversity of some form, under stress, right? And and so that's where someone can be resilient. You can't be resilient if everything's going your way, right? Like there's there's no need for resilience at that point. You're just you're performing. You're good. It's when there is adversity. And and when I took this position at USTA, and I was already doing this with the National Team Development Program, talking a lot about resilience with those players in Ann Arbor, we're bringing it to the USTA. Because tennis is a sport where we track unforced errors, forced errors, and oftentimes there's more errors than there are winners in a match, you better be pretty resilient, right? And then if we transfer that to hockey, I know that's our audience here. Um, how many times do you see giveaways in these games that lead to goals, right? Especially at the, at the amateur level, at the youth level. Um, it's happening all the time. How are our players responding to that? How are our coaches responding to that? And the other thing I think about is if you, you know, I grabbed some stats last year. I wanted to know, like, who was turning over the puck the most in the NHL? And I came to find that it's actually the players who have the puck the most, and they're usually defensemen, that turn over the puck the most. So it's not like it's, oh, these guys are really bad, they turn over the puck the most. It's the people who have the puck the most on their stick. And so as a coach and as a mental coach, I had to understand that, all right, if we're going to have resilient players, we have to give them room to try to make plays. And they're going to make mistakes when they do that, right? So resilience to me uh, is the maybe the, the most appropriate skill slash quality that a hockey player needs because the game is chaotic. Uh, it's, it's messy. Pucks are bouncing around. People are making mistakes. Um, you know, goalies need it for sure because uh, they take the heat when there is a goal. Uh, you know, so... To me, resilience, it's much more about how can you bounce back when something doesn't go your way than looking for a perfect performance. I find, you know, when we actually start talking in that way as coaches, it strengthens our players because they're not afraid to make mistakes. And they know they can get back up and be fine and still perform and win that game. And that's really the kind of confidence we want, resilient kind of confidence, where I can believe in myself that things aren't going my way. And that's born out of resilience, right? Uh, fragile confidence is when, you know, I have to have everything to go my way and I feel good about myself. Well, how many days does that actually happen, right? So many times, you know, one of your first shifts, you go out and turn over the puck, you miss an assignment, uh, you make the wrong play. How are you going to respond? Is that going to affect the rest of the game? Or are you going to be able to come back, hopefully in the middle of that shift or by the next shift, uh, playing the game well? So... To me, resilience is the key to performing. 
It's also, I think, a very important component of participation because kids must learn how to be resilient to go through these deliberate practice years where they're making a ton of mistakes. You better be pretty darn resilient to stay with the game, and our coaches need to preach it and teach it that, you know what, you learn from these mistakes and you got to make them so you can get better and eventually you won't make them. Well, I think you said something so vital at the end there. You said that these kids can learn it and these coaches need to, I think you said, preach it and teach it. Uh, I think so often with mental skills like resiliency, we just assume that these kids have it or um, that it's not something, you know, maybe we have a kid, oh, well, he's not, he's just not very resilient. Once, once he lets in a goal, he, he shuts down, right? That's, that's who he is. Um, but as you're alluding to, and probably why you have a job and many other mental skills, people have jobs is that we can teach it and they can learn it. Um, yes. which I, I, I think is really important. It is. And I'm glad you, you point that out because you know, on some level, there is a socialization genetic piece to this where some people are more resilient than others. But the reality is that everyone can be resilient. That's why in psych literature, they call it kind of ordinary magic, where everybody can be resilient. And you won't always be resilient. That's the other thing. Just because someone is resilient most of the time doesn't mean they're always going to be resilient. So those are things that we must understand. Um, we can teach it. Uh, we can develop it in players, even if you think that they're lacking in resilience. And that's what we try to teach through our programming is, all right, let's understand the person and what they're going through. And, and the keys are, you know, to me, you put them in four four buckets. Do we understand that the stress, the stressors, the demands that they're on? Do we know how they're looking at those things, perceiving those things? What are their thoughts about? All right. Because if I have thoughts around it, and I'm thinking like, I can't deal with this. I'm not going to be resilient. But if I can cope with it, if I'm like, okay, this is tough, you know, down two goals early, I gave up two soft goals, the goaltender. That's tough. But I can, I can, can do this. I just got to reset. I got to focus. Um, do they believe they can deal with it? And do they have the skills to deal with it? And do they have the support to deal with it? Those things affect your emotions. Because if I, if I'm down 2-0, giving up two soft goals, but I'm in my head able to say, like, what? Just make the next save. You got this. Keep your team close. I can do this, right? then your emotions aren't going to get out of whack. You're not going to get too over frustrated, angry, embarrassed, whatever. However, if you have that thought, oh my gosh, like I'm blowing it for my team. I'm letting them down. They're so soft. I can't believe I did it. I'm failing. My parents are going to be upset. You are going to struggle. You are going to be anxious. You're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated, embarrassed. You're going to feel a lot of emotions. And those emotions they grab the steering wheel of your mind and turn it in another direction, right? Because I want to go down this direction, stable, focused, locked in. My emotions are saying, hey, we're taking a left turn. We're going to go down that road where you feel bad for yourself. We're going to go down that road to the right where uh, you're super angry and you start trying to hit people with your stick. 
or we're going to go in reverse and just try to get the heck out of here, right? Not even engage in or pull the shoot, as we say. So our emotions are powerful. They're meant to drive behavior, but they always come from the way we're thinking. The emotions are what the players feel. We can start to, how are you doing? I'm super angry. Those were such soft goals. Okay. Now they're giving me an understanding of the way they're thinking. They're treating those goals as soft. That is bad, so they're looking at themselves as bad. All right, what can I do? I can normalize it. Like, hey, man, everybody gives up a goal or two sometimes. Just make the next one. You're fine. You're okay. Your team will get that for you. I can normalize it, right? I can remind them of how they were successful in the past. Do you remember when you gave up those two goals the first period last week and we came back and won and you shut the door? You can do that again. So as a coach, I can start to go to these skills that change their thinking. I can start to change the way they're seeing these demands. With the hopes of changing behavior, right? At the end of this cycle, are they focused? Are they going through their routines? Are they communicating uh, the things you would want to see? So hopefully it gives the listeners a snapshot um, into what you can do. And there's a lot more to it. You know, we, especially, you know, on the bench routines, stuff like that that I can talk about. But at its heart, to be resilient, you have to be able to think differently about the situation. That you're in. Um, there's a great example of George Kittle from the NFC Championship game this weekend. The 49ers were down to the Lions saying, hey, this is going to be great when we come back. They got us in the first half. When we come back, this is going to be awesome. He started the spark and they – that mentality that, that must have caught hold with other guys that still believed. Um, and they came back and won. So that's being resilient. That's some serious adversity. And they found a way to get done. Yeah. So I, I want you're, this is really, really awesome. Um, and I love some of these strategies that you're talking about and, and these references to um, real life things that are happening. And I want to pull it back just a little bit because I, I think this was awesome that you had from your from your PowerPoint that you had sent over to us a few weeks ago. You talked about the three pillars of resilience, and I've heard you mention all three of them so far uh, in what you're talking about. Can you walk uh, us through what are those three pillars of resilience? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to bring up. And this comes from the research of Sarkar and others. The idea is that you to be resilient, you need three things. These are three pillars and hallmarks of resilience. Number one is there has to be adversity, as I mentioned. Uh, that there is adversity that you must respond to, you must overcome. And typically in any game, there is some form of adversity. And so we're not really looking for the perfect performance. We're looking for the greedy, persistent, determined, so resilient. Performance. Um, the second pillar is you got to be skilled. And I was mentioning this with that example with the goaltender giving two goals. There's some cognitive skills or thought skills that can help you to be resilient. Um, there's other skills as well, like breathing. We know that taking deep breaths allows us to quiet our mind, become present, let go. Uh, so we teach breathing to every single tennis player that comes through here. And I was teaching breathing to hockey players before that. How to breathe in such ways that you're recovering well and you're refocusing. Uh, and, and as well as other skills like being able to stay present, being able to 
focus, uh, process goal setting. Can you set goals that captivate the mind forward in there around how you want to play and how you want to compete versus the outcome? Because if you get hooked up on the outcomes, oh my God, we were down two goals, you might not have a good response. So there's, there's a number of skills like visualization and imagery that we use to counter and overcome adversity. You have to have those skills. And then there's support. If you put players in an environment mistakes are allowed and coaching is occurring if mistakes are embraced and players are encouraged to push the edges to fall down and get back up because that's where you're getting better um, they start to take chances they start to push the edge of how good they are they need support in that way they need support when they make mistakes they need support when um, they're struggling emotionally right and it's not always unicorns and rainbows, right? Sometimes it's a tough message like, hey, you right now, you need to get yourself under control. You need to take a breath. You need to sit down here. You're going to sit a shift because you, you aren't controlling your responses. You can do that. That's a part of this whole deal. Really, there's times where you have to do more of that, what we call coaching, for sure. Um, so players need three things. They need to have adversity. That pillar has a lot to do with the way you look at adversity. Right? For us at USDA and player development, we talk about it as it's part and parcel of every single match you ever play. There is going to be some form of adversity. You're up 6-0-3-0, you're down left 30 in your serve. That feels like adversity because suddenly the momentum is shifting. How are you going to do it? Moment, right? How you think about things really matters. So. You want to have philosophies as a coach, like, hey, you know what? No matter what happens, we get back up. We keep going. We keep playing. We keep doing our playing our role, doing our job, right? You you want to have these kinds of philosophies. Um, you know, for example, another one. Uh, we I just heard someone talk about this with the NHL, an 82 game season. You can't get caught up in any performance. There's going to be ups and downs during the season. Even if you're in a 12 game season, probably. So try to ride that out. Try to understand that there's going to be times where you don't perform, but you can bounce back and perform. So these kinds of philosophies, when the coaches are communicating them, the players can start to accept them. Uh, so there's philosophies around adversity, there's skills that we use, and then there's support to provide to players to be able to use the skills and have that kind of mindset uh, challenge mindset some are calling it there's a challenge there's an adversity i'm going to take it on like this is really great and i i love you talking about that adversity piece in um in games um i'm assuming that we can also work on this in practice um because so i'm a former special education teacher uh, I worked with kids with behavior needs mm -hmm. and, you know, we would, we'd go into the classroom and, you know, it'd be one-on-one -on -one and we'd have some conversations around our emotions and, and things like that. Um, but the change, that's not where the change happened for some of these kids. The change happened uh, in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. When, when the adversity actually hits. And I think for a lot of coaches, um, while yes, the game is a great place for us to teach, uh, cause there is a lot of adversity. 
for coaches, how do you create that adversity in your practices in a, in an environment where we can slow it down if we need to, and we can talk about those things? Yeah, great points and a great question. Uh, and this is something that is also a hallmark of what we try to do at the USTA, and that is create adversity, create stress for the players uh, in training because we feel it's that important that they get a chance to rehearse and practice their routines, how they're dealing with things uh, before they ever get into the environment. And, you know, from a hockey perspective, uh, I, I like to play a lot of small games, honestly, uh, where we put players in different situations and see how they handle it. Uh, and we make it competitive. We keep score, you know, not a, not a problem. I like keeping the score because then the players get more into it. Uh, but we'll, we'll create, you know, adversity. Okay, you're, you're playing down a person. Uh, you know, how are you going to deal with that, right? Um, you know, we'll – We'll stack it a little bit sometimes, especially like with the D. You know, we'll say, okay, we're we're sending our best three fours at you, and you're two D, and you got to get out of this three V two small game. Can you work together? And we might then have a person at the blue line that's an outlier if if they're struggling uh, with that, because that can be tough. But so creating these situations that are relevant to the game, that are real adversity, right now. Honestly, when you're, when you're playing small games, there's so many little mistakes that happen that there's many, many opportunities for teachable moments, right? Where if we're playing a 3v3 game, um, people are making mistakes. People are turning over pucks. Uh, we can stop the play and talk and talk about how we can respond to it. And, and that's important, right? Um, instead of throwing your arms up and looking at me, get back, find the puck, find the man, make a play, right? Stay on them, even better. So those are things that we can we can talk about uh, on the ice and and then off the ice. It's, it's something too, Zach, like you don't just, because hockey rinks are so loud because uh, we, we typically have two teams on the ice at the same time, so it can be really loud. So a lot of also this teaching happens in the locker room before and after practices where we're talking about our responses you know okay today i feel like we responded really well uh, in that game that we played what were you doing and then asking the question uh, you know so again as a coach putting them in situations and see how they're going to handle it and are they using the skills that we're talking about now being where i coach because I'm, I'm coaching houses right now coaching travel um, we don't really necessarily have time to play games in practice you know full-on games we come to the bench we're trying to keep the kids playing the whole time um, but if I had that opportunity uh, where I had a full ice practice and enough players at times I would practice being on the bench come over go through your routine uh, what does that on the bench routine look like after you made a mistake I got to come over. I got to drink some water. Maybe I'm thinking about it. I got to take maybe two deep breaths, let go, accept my mistake. And then I got to start to focus on a solution if I need be, and then get my mind back on the game. Maybe I'm talking to my line, right? So having that, that routine um, 
one of the things that have taught many players is you make, let's say you turn over the puck, you come back to the bench and you're super frustrated. You know your coach is frustrated. Sit down, have some water. Maybe you're talking to your teammates. Take some breaths. Work on letting go because everyone makes mistakes. But visualize the play you're going to make the next time. See your success. Plant that in your brain so you can move forward. We don't want to be stuck in the past. We don't want to carry that mistake into the next shift because it just creates more mistakes. So we can practice it. Uh, it's a lot easier to do it in practice than in the game. I know how it is in the game. There's so much going on you're trying to see and you're trying to communicate that a lot of things slip by in games. Um, so it's a lot easier to practice. So I would, I would definitely uh, try to see some practice. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea you had about, um, you know, if you can, I, I coach uh, college aged kids. So, uh, and we have as much ice as we really uh, would like. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I find that so fascinating, the idea of actually just walking through some of those things in practice and, and maybe just noticing a player who's frustrated or even um, noticing a group that's frustrated and, hey, let's go take a quick break go sit down, let's run through our, our stuff, let's reset, <clears throat> uh, take some breaths, and then let's let's get back into this. And uh, yeah. for, for me, I've always found that, um, you know, when we talk about practice design, we talk about representative design as being something that's really important if we want our skills to transfer. We wanna create a practice that looks like the game. Right? We want to get them lots of reps at the skill we want them to work on. But I think that one of the biggest keys to representative design is that real life emotion, right? Now there's times where we want to slow things down. There's times where we want um, our players to work through some stuff with no stress, right? But ultimately, if you want that to actually show up in the game, I think that the emotion and the stress is, is incredibly important to add and, and something that we've had as a key for our team when we practice is we do i don't know if i've talked about this on the podcast but the guys love it we have um it was original the idea was originally from seth appert he talked about this in the level five uh, but he they do like a small area games sheet that keeps track of the players uh, individual wins so if they're on the winning team they get a point um, on their their compete sheet and whoever has the most points at the end of the year, like they kind of track that stuff. Well, we have an award for it on our team, um, but we'll do compete days. And mm -hmm. if your team's the you're on the winning team that day, then you get a point. And by the end of the year, whoever has the most, uh, we have like a top dog award. But we've seen every single year um, a practice where on on the compete day we'll do four games in total. The last game is winner takes all. In the first three games, um, if I was on the blue team and the blue team won the first three games, then we start the last game up three nothing. Yeah. And I've seen it every year where the team, one team will win the first three games, go into the last game up three nothing and lose. And mm -hmm. it is in practice like they actually just lost their last game of the season. Yeah. You will see heads down. You will see frustration. You will see guys that are so upset. And it's 
to me as a coach, I'm like, this is awesome, right? This is a great opportunity for us to be able to step in and have some conversations and talk about these things, right? How did it feel when you were down three, nothing? What was, what were you thinking about when you were down three, nothing? And for the other team, you know, what were you thinking about being up three, nothing? And then once you started to see the other team climbing back, what was going through your mind? What were you feeling? What were you seeing? And uh, to me, it's been something that I find incredibly valuable is, is that idea of playing under um, emotion and, and stress and, and really that, um, to me, that's the highest level of transfer to the game. Yeah, because we know that when it's an emotional experience, it gets encoded more strongly in our memory, right? And so we want to create an emotion in our dream, and we want to learn to regulate that emotion, right? So I'm not a proponent of, well, let's rule emotion out. No, I want emotion. That makes the game fun. It makes it enjoyable. But then I want to learn how to manage it, right? And so we're going to introduce things that create emotion, create stress, and then we're going to ask you to use your skills and use your routines to work through it, right? So that I love that setup. And again, that's a great example of how you can make something really matter in practice um, so that it feels more like a game because winning and losing matters. There's a consequence for, for this, whether it's ego, whether it's, you know, whatever, you know, some reward, whatever. But again, you're also where you're coaching makes a huge difference because if you're working with eight and under, you know, much different story than college age guys. But, um, you know, to me, engaging emotion is, is critical. And we talk about the same thing with imagery and visualization. It is way more successful when your emotions are engaged. And if you're engaging people's senses, then they're, they're going to feel that, right? So that create that urgency, that desire to win, to avoid losing. Um, in certain situations, especially with older players, it's a great thing. Um, and I like that a lot. So I would just, I would have them practice their routines like we're talking about on the bench. Like, okay, you're coming over. You got a job to do on the bench. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that I've never done with my team personally, but definitely something that I, I think we will, are, are looking to implement for sure. I think that would be great. Um, the simple you know, way to think about that too, Zach, sorry, is no go. recovery. So when you come over, you're engaging in recovery, right? You're slowing your breathing down, you're getting some water, maybe you're talking with your line mates, your deep hair. And then once you've gone through that, it's, it's really time to refocus. What am I going to do on this next shift? Maybe something, one thing, right? Something simple. We're going to play with speed. Okay, great. And then it's time to recommit, which to me is get your head back into the game, watch the play, be ready to go on the ice, right? And you have to practice it because what you don't want are guys sitting there in their head and you're telling them to go on the ice. So you have to get to work out the timing of it. You got to work on, but it's a great thing because you have to work on refocusing on the fly, right? Which is, is a great skill to develop and can be developed in practice. So. Yeah, that's really um, that's really cool. I, I'm really uh, enjoying some of these uh, some of these ideas personally, and I'm I'm assuming if I'm enjoying them, hopefully uh, 
hopefully a lot of the coaches listening are really enjoying some of these strategies that we can use. Um, so yeah, I think where it gets hung up is it's a bit different. So sometimes yeah. it's outside the strike zone. So we feel a bit uncomfortable trying things, but I always encourage coaches try it out because typically coaches are more creative than I am and they find even better ways to do it. So. Yeah, that's really good. And um, we actually had, we had Pierre, Pierre DeBar uh, on the podcast early on and the whole episode we talked about breathing. So uh, mm. any reference that, you know, someone wants to look a little bit deeper, there's lots of different um, resources that people can use regarding breathing. Like I personally, I, I use the, well, I go back and forth, but I, I'll use the call map. I use Headspace. I, I like those ones for help developing some strategies in myself. Um, but I, I know there's some also some free alternatives online and, and things like that. If um, or as I said, you know, check out an early on podcast where we talked about some breathing. We talked about what it looks might look like pregame, what it might look like in the moment, and then even what kind of recovery or postgame looks like. But um, with that said, I was talking about this before we started recording. But you had some videos at the end of your presentation that uh, I was about ready to run through a wall. Uh, hmm. about resiliency in sport and uh, I can share some of those in the the show notes we don't have to walk through them now but it made me think if you had to pick one moment in sports history of the greatest moment of resiliency what would you pick you put me on the spot man. I don't know uh, I think my bias would come out if I said you the Flyers coming back from three games to none against the Bruins. Uh, but I love that story because the next year the Bruins win the Stanley Cup, right? After the worst falling apart I've seen. So that, I mean, that's another longer term point of being resilient. Um, I think there's obviously individual sort of experiences of resilience as well. I, I put the Korea video in that one. Um, because that one was just so, it's so clear. You know, he gets knocked out of the game and he comes back. I'm not sure he should come back in the game. He comes back and plays and, and, and scores such a pivotal moment, you know, such an, a big play, uh, you know, to, to see that. But uh, there's a lot of great examples um, out there. And, you know, they're happening every day to be honest, where players are demonstrating resilience um, and showing their true character. Um, you know, again, just thinking of, of going through all the different situations in my head now, like, you know, Stamco's coming back just to play a little bit to help that team win the cup in, 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 the, in the bubble. Or, uh, yeah, there's just so many different things that, that come to mind. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly... Uh, happening all the time that's why we call it ordinary magic because it's special but anyone can do it and it's happening often. i love that i love that ordinary magic that's uh that's great yeah and that to be fair the bruins flyers one was the one i was watching that i was like on the edge of my seat i was really uh, excited about watching so um yeah, there's also the one with the sharks in the game seven where they were down what four goals and they won. was that that five minute power play that yeah. to me was like the quickest change. The 49ers coming back from the Lions on Sunday was a huge momentum shift. But that where the Sharks were down to Vegas, four goals, scored those goals, and then won in overtime. 
but that video, that one too, it's just like, wow, that to listen to that and hear, yeah, really. So, well, it's interesting you talk about that 49ers and Lions game, and I, I didn't get to watch it. I was on a plane actually heading back from Orlando to Ohio, and I, but I had seen the clip online of there was the Kittle clip um of him what he was saying to his group but then there was the lions player i didn't see who it was but when they were up he was you know waving at the crowd waving by and it's so interesting to see the two sides of it right and i don't um the the you talked about the highs and lows at the beginning of this right and and how do you act when when emotions are high and and your the group is doing well but once again, how do you act when when you're down and, and right. you know everything's not things aren't going right for you? And I, I think both of those are, are skills uh, in themselves. They are. We we probably talk about this more in tennis than we do in hockey because um, it's a one-on-one sport. But a lot of tennis coaches will tell you when you're up and you're playing well, your opponent's down. To don't give them anything. Don't show them that because that can fuel them, that can make them angry, that can make them more determined because they feel like you're showing them off, right? So why would you give them that? I think that, uh, you know, that's easier said than put on, especially in a sport like football or hockey where it's a team sport and players are feeding off the crowd and the crowd's feeding off the players. It's such a big moment. Uh, so people are going to do things, they're going to react. Um, I think what we try to do is express, you know, before you do something, try to put a space between stimulus and response. So I make a big play, but the game's not over yet. I can celebrate, but just take that breath and be like, yeah, this is exciting, this is fun, but we got, we still got a job to do. I'll, I'll never forget, I was talking uh, to a tennis coach who played Davis Cup, which is international team event in tennis. And he, he mentioned to me that, um, you know, he was playing this match and went to a third set breaker. He was the underdog and he's up in the third set breaker. He wins a point. He's up like six ones, first to seven by two. Has this huge emotional response. You know, won a big point, loses the next seven points. He just went too high. And then when you expend all that, the low can get really low, like you're talking about. So, what I say to the players, like, you, it's an emotional game. There's going to be celebrating. There's going to be reactions. I understand that. Let's try to keep them in that moderate range to small range. And then when you win, go big. That's fine. Uh, but until then, you still have a job. you got to be ready to play the next shift. you got to be ready to play the next point in tennis. And I think players in tennis feel it more because usually if you score a goal, you come off the ice. Uh, and you have time to kind of refocus. In tennis, you got to play that next point, point five seconds. So if you're getting rowdy, there's really not time to recover. Um, okay, so last question here. Uh, this is probably a kind of larger question, though. Um, but really, if you could encourage coaches to do one thing to help their players right now, maybe something that you don't often see um, youth coaches doing, um, and something they could implement and start doing right now with their team, what would that one thing be? Yeah, that's a great question. And 
my mind is just spinning because there's so many different things. Um, you know, the, that we're talking about all the time, Compete Like a Champion podcast that I do with John Parks. Um, there's a plug there, right? Compete Like a Champion. Uh, but I think one thing, it's probably going to turn to a couple things, but taking each individual player, I know it, it's hard, but if you've got a couple coaches on the team, uh, even a couple parents, giving them some feedback on something they're doing well and something you want them to improve. And then when you get on the ice, you're aware of that. And you're catching them when they're doing it right. You're encouraging them. And you're encouraging them to push the edges and make mistakes, right? Because that gives them the freedom to just go. And that's where really the learning happens is at the edges of your capacity, right? Give them the freedom to just go and play and then teach and, and talk about, okay, well, you tried that play there. What were you thinking? I, I thought that that path to the other D was open. I made the pass and stole it. Like I, I didn't get my head on before I made the pass. Right there is great learning, right? That kid is not going to make that same mistake if they turn the puck during the blue line. If I had just stopped the play and yelled at them, How are you, why are you making that pass? It would have become something different. It would have been me going at them, which would they would might have resented versus like, hey, talk to me about what you were thinking. How can we do this in a different way and yet still be creative. Um, so I think you try to get with each player, understand where they are, what they're working on, look for those teachable moments and, and let them make mistakes and use that to teach. Uh, encourage them to push themselves to where they do make some mistakes, but also that they're learning from uh, that. Okay, let's understand what happened here because that's where the growth is going to come. So uh, if you can create an environment players feel safe, that they can make mistakes, um, where they can put themselves out on the line, out on that limb and go for it, um, then you can really start to see them flourish and grow. Uh, and it's not just what the coaches say, it's the environment in the locker room, right, on the bench. If there's other team members talking negatively about that player, you have got to deal with them. You have got to stop them so that you still have that open learning environment. Um, yeah, that to me, I think is crucial because again, if you want resilience, then people have to put themselves in a position where they can be resilient, which means that they're doing the cool things that create growth. That's the way I look at it. Awesome. I love that. Um, so you mentioned your podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which people go, um, check out, uh, check out your podcast, but where can people find you if they wanted to get in touch with you and, and learn a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, I'm on Twitter, you know, it's Larry Lauer, um, you know, USTA, we have a lot of resources on the player development's website, uh, USTA player development. You can look up my name, uh, a lot of different resources They compete like a champion podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast so we we provide a lot myself and coach johnny parks provide a lot of this information through the podcast uh we've actually done something now zach where we every other episode is a skill drill episode. so we take something and we turn it into a drill if you remember me talking about how a lot of coaches weren't using the mental skills we're trying to communicate in such a way that here's how you can work on being resilient in the middle of a drill 
for a, a small game. So, so those are kind of we also interview people as well and, and do different things. But uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, yeah, you can email me to lowry@usta.com if you have specific questions. And then, you know, USA Hockey has always been great to me. Um, you know, I, during COVID lockdown, I did the um, the webinar with Ken Martell as well. That's out on YouTube. So there's resources out there. Um, but yeah, certainly people can find me on Twitter. I gave my email, uh, USTA website, be like a champion. They, they want more, so. Awesome. Well, I'll put all of that stuff in the show notes for anyone interested to uh, learn more, whether it be through the podcast, through the webinar, uh, or even just reach out to you individually. But um, Larry, I really, really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Um, thank you for hopping on. Any last thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, you know, there's there's so much in this area of resilience. Um, you know, just keep in mind that everyone is capable of being resilient, and we're not always going to be resilient. Players need time to recover from stress and adversity, um, so it's challenging, especially when we're tired hurting to be resilient. Um, so just keep those things in mind that I can kind of come off like, yeah, like everybody should be resilient at the time. It's not happening. Um, but what can happen time is the way you go about things. My process can be similar, right? So maybe I'm going through my routines on the bench, but I don't perform well. That's going to reinforce doing the right thing, especially when the coach come back, comes back and says, you know what? Wasn't your best day, but you're doing the right things. Stay with it. Um, so to me, you know, you're talking about resilience. It's messy. People aren't always going to adapt and perform, but sometimes they're going to. It's going to be special. And this is really what hockey's about. You know, it's a it's a fun, fast, intense game where there are mistakes, and people have the puck most probably making the most mistakes. So the more we can encourage them to make plays, uh, you know, that really benefit the whole team and we're supportive of them when they make those mistakes, you're going to get the most growth from the players. So, yeah. Awesome, Larry. Appreciate that. That's a good way to, uh, to close it out. So, Larry, thanks for your time. And for everyone else who made it this far, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.